Everyone that uh, remains in the room, let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 10. So Luke chapter 10 is where we will be this morning. Very helpful for you if you have a Bible to follow along as we look through this passage. So it's going to be verses 1 through 16 of Luke chapter 10 as we have been making our way through this glorious gospel, revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Luke chapter 10, and I'd ask you to stand one last time here as we give our honor to the word of the Lord. Luke 10, 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord, and you can be seated. Now let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, as we have heard your word revealed to us here through Luke's gospel, we admit our need for your help, and so we pray for the Holy Spirit and for the illumination that only you can provide through your spirit in our hearts, awaken, awakening us to our need for you, our need for your grace, our need for the Lord Jesus to be king in our hearts. Help us, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Most of you know that I was raised on a farm my family's life uh, was governed by the growing season of, of corn and beans, with the, the weeks of harvest being the biggest event on our yearly calendar. It was our favorite time of year. And there is uh, just something about the feel of the cool air, the sun going down earlier each evening, and the smell of the freshly harvested corn or beans in the air. When I was really young, 
I just couldn't wait to be a part of it. And, and it was in those early years where all I did was just ride along with my dad in the combine or with my grandpa or uncles in the tractors pulling the wagons, but I just loved being included in that work. And eventually, it came to the point where I was not just riding along, but driving the tractors, hauling the loads myself, and eventually driving the grain cart, trying to keep up with my dad in the combine. It was and still is by far the most exciting and invigorating time of a farmer's year. And farmers know when it's har harvest time, it's all hands on deck. When I was young, my uncle, uh, who worked a job in town, he would, he would use uh, vacation days to come out and help us in the harvest. And even on the days uh, which he worked in town, he would still come out right after he got off of work to help um, at nights. And now his son, uh, my cousin, does the same thing, saves most of his vacation days for harvest time so that he could come out and help. And he even talked one of his good friends into doing the same thing. So just one of his friends that he works with saves up his vacation time also uh, so he can come out and help us. He's been doing that for the last uh, few years as well. You know, once you get the once you get a, a taste of, of, of what it's like the, to experience the fun and the excitement of the corn harvest, you just keep coming back. You keep coming back. And these days on the farm, farmers use some of the most technical, advanced, and not to mention large, modern equipment in order to, to gather the harvest. Combines with GPS navigational guidance systems uh, tractors, grain carts, semi-tractor trailers, corn dryers, grain conveyors to move the grain, and large 100,000 bushels or more storage bins. However, as we see here in Luke's gospel, when God gathers his harvest, he chooses to use some of the simplest and even most unimpressive equipment to do the gathering. God uses ordinary people. Ordinary people, like you and I, with a very simple message to share personally with others in homes, in restaurants, in coffee shops, even, even in gyms. It really is an impossible task, this harvest, as we'll see as we go through this passage, and yet, the Lord has great confidence that our efforts will be effective. He assures us that once the gathering is completed, there will be this great multitude that no one will be able to number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, who will all be standing before the throne and before the Lord Jesus, our Savior, confessing together that simple message which they heard and believed and were gathered in by. That message, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. Every one of those in that great multitude will share the testimony of someone, someone like you, coming to them and sharing that message with them. 
and then believing and receiving the Lord Jesus as their king, as their savior, as their only hope for salvation. So friends, we are in the midst of the harvest right now. The gathering has begun. These are truly exciting times to be a Christian. So let's learn more about this harvest this morning from this passage. Our main theme from these verses in Luke 10 is that the Lord is gathering his people through the message of all those sent out by him. He's gathering his people through the message of all those sent out by him. Look at verses 1 through 4. As we, as we begin here, we kind of divided up this passage into three sections. The first section is, is verses 1 through 4. And the heading I put over that is, We must trust the Lord of the harvest in the mission he's given us. Okay, look at verse 1 through 4. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. This may sound familiar to some of you. If you were here two months ago on July 6th, we were, we were back in Luke chapter 9, the very beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, where the Lord Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with similar instructions as these. But now the number of messengers has increased somewhat. And depending upon what translation you have of the Bible in front of you, the number is either 70 or 72. Now it's quite an an increase no matter which number it is. This shows us that it was the Lord's purpose to share his ministry with his followers. He wasn't a one-man show, so to speak. He had a message that he was declaring regarding God's plan for the fulfillment of his promises to his people. And it was a message that anyone who received it could also share with others. Now, why is there this discrepancy that I mentioned between the number 70 or 72? Well, I'm, I'm kind of a Bible nerd, and, and I really enjoyed learning about all the different reasons for this discrepancy in the translations this week, and I, I could probably give you a full lecture on it. Um, you know, who, who knows, maybe I, I'll do that sometime in a Sunday school class, but I'm not going to do, do, do that today. The summary of, of that reason is that there's a good number of, of ancient Greek manuscripts that has the word for 70 there in verse 1, and there's also a good number of ancient manuscripts with the number 2 following the number 70. So a good argument could be made for, for both numbers. We see them in, in early ma- manuscripts. One says 70, one says 72. Both numbers are significant in the Bible. But whether it was 70 or 72 doesn't really affect the meaning or teaching of the passage at all. You know, a good case can, can, could be made for 70, good case could, could, could be made for, for 72, but it doesn't really make that much difference as to the meaning of the passage. So pick whatever your translation says. Mine says 72, so that's what I'm going to go with, 72. What is even more significant in verse 1 is what it tells us about Jesus. Okay, Luke refers to Jesus here in verse 1 as the Lord. That is the title given to God by faithful Jews. He tells us 
It was the Lord who appointed the 72. That is, Jesus chose who the 72 were going to be. And he directed them to go on ahead of him. He, he gave them the assignment. He was the Lord. He was the sovereign one, the master behind this whole operation. They were to go into every town and place where the Lord was about to go. They would be like, like John the Baptist. For John the Baptist went ahead of the Lord to prepare the way for him in his ministry so they're going to go and prepare the people to receive Jesus. It was going to be a glorious mission. But Jesus alerts them the mission would not be easy. In fact, he basically lets them know that they are all insufficient for the mission. In verse 2, he t- the, the Lord tells them the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That is, you 72 are not going to be enough to gather in this harvest. You are few compared to how great this harvest is going to be. Remember, multitudes that no one can number are eventually going to be gathered up. So more workers are needed. So what are they to do about this? How are they going to respond to this problem for more workers? More workers are needed. Well, maybe they can run a smooth and ad campaign to try to attract you know, more, more people to this, to this mission, you know, hire maybe a marketing firm to help them attract more workers to be a part of this great adventure. No, 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 that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says they are to pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's it, Jesus? pray? Just ask for help? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, in verses 2 and 3, Jesus gives these messengers the two most important commands that they will need. They are to pray, and then they are to go. Again, verse 2, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Verse 3, go your way. Pray, go. If they go without prayer, They'll be vastly out, outnumbered and, and overmatched. The job is too great for them. But if they pray without going, well, then they will miss out on the harvest. No one will be gathered into the people of God. The corn doesn't just harvest itself. Farmers don't pray and then wake up one morning to find all their fields bare and their bins full of corn. They need to, they need to pray for help. Yes, but they also need to go and gather the harvest. The great uh, preacher J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, prayer is one of the best and most powerful means of helping forward the cause of Christ in the world. The whole church is to pray for this. Pray for this great harvest taking place in the world. There, There are workers all over the place. We know some of them from our church. So pray for them. I have many friends who are missionaries and many others who are pastors. And you know what? They can all testify to the same thing, the same need. They all could use more help. So pray. Pray for more help. 
But don't just pray. Brothers and sisters, if you are one whom the Lord has transformed by a saving grace, then also go. Share this message. Tell others who Jesus really is. And invite them to receive him as Lord. So pray and go. But be warned. The Lord alerts us again in verses 3 and 4 about our need to trust him and totally depend upon him in this mission. Verses 3 and 4, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So think about this. This, this image here that the Lord gives us, this image of lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus' messengers are the lambs here. And the one who is known as the good shepherd is sending out his weak lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs are completely helpless. They're utterly defenseless creatures especially against wolves. Lambs never win that battle. Even if there are two of them, the lamb's only hope, while under the threat of wolves, is for supernatural protection. They are utterly dependent upon someone far bigger and stronger than themselves and the wolves to come and save them. So thankfully, Psalm 23 tells us this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For, it says in the middle of Psalm 23, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me as I'm passing through this valley of the shadow of death, this valley of darkness and threat. You are with me. So if there were, 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 were wolves out there why in the world then would Jesus risk this important mission by sending out lambs? You know, why not send out other wolves? Again, this tells something about the mission, about what his messengers need to know to be prepared for this mission. They cannot do it without trusting in the Lord of the harvest to help them. That's why also they are not to bring along a money bag or a knapsack or an extra pair of sandals. They must depend upon the Lord of the harvest, to supply them with all the necessities that, that, that they might be needing along the way. They must trust the same Lord who sovereignly called them into this work that he will also provide for them. But it also suggests something about how we, how they as well, are to go about their work. The Christian way of evangelism or making disciples is not the way of wolves. It's the way of lambs. We don't force our way into people's homes. We don't invite ourselves in. We call on them and offer them peace. The message of peace with God. Christians don't force anyone to convert to the way of Christianity. Rather, we love them. We, we get to know them. And we simply share the truth of the gospel with them. We invite them to come along with us as we follow the good shepherd. But we don't chase them down and attack and wound them like wolves. If they don't let us into their homes, we don't threaten to huff and puff and blow their house in. The way of Christian mission is a way of peace. 
which of course is not the way of the world. Have you watched the news this summer? How are most of the people in the streets of Minneapolis, Portland, Chicago, and now this week, Kenosha, how are they trying to convince us that their message is true? That they are right? What are they doing? Looks like wolves. Christians follow the way of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world by laying down his life his own life for sinners on the cross so then we could be forgiven and have peace with God. And we follow him by laying down our lives for others like lambs, offering them peace with God through sharing his message with them. Verses five through nine is next. We are to give and receive hospitality as we participate in the Lord's mission. Look at verses five through nine there. Uh, we, we are showing again here the great importance of uh, given to hospitality in Luke's gospel. All of these 72 are traveling to different villages and they are all in need of a place to stay. In those days, travelers depended upon the kindness and hospitality of others. It was, it was for the most part a cultural expectation. If hospitality wasn't offered or provided, it was taken as a great offense and brought shame upon the community. So we'll see in verses 10 through 16 that refusing to, to welcome the Lord's messengers was an ominous sign of God's condemnation upon a community. Whether or not hospitality was offered was a very serious matter. We see in this explanation that the mission of the Lord depended in a large way upon the hospitality of strangers. Without a place to stay, the message of the kingdom would not be able to be offered within that community. This teaches us about the importance of offering hospitality as well. A couple of modern examples of this is when missionaries are traveling, traveling around trying to raise support. Most will depend upon a family within the church that they're visiting to put them up for a night or two. That will almost certainly involve providing a few meals as well. And yes, it is a bit of an inconvenience for the host, but I've never heard of, from anyone who has hosted missionaries that said, you know, it just wasn't worth it. You know, most have given testimonies of what a great joy it was for them to be blessed with the presence of Christian workers in their home. It strengthened relationships. It encouraged them to hear stories about how God was working through them. In other words, they received a blessing of peace in their home. Another way that, that, <clears throat> that the support is offered and received by Christian workers is when believers and churches provide financial support for missionaries and Christian workers. As it says, the laborer deserves his wages, and full-time Christian workers receive their wages through the gospel. That is, by devoting their work to gospel ministries and having those who benefit from the gospel ministry provide for their needs, like churches providing for pastors, even providing them with a home to live in, as you have done for us. But also other Christians who join in the mission of the gospel with Christian workers by providing them with, with financial, financial support so then that they can you know, have a home and take care of their needs wherever they are serving in an, an, another city or another country. But it's not just important to offer hospitality, as this passage shows us. It's also very important 
to be willing to receive that hospitality. Receive that hospitality in a way that will promote the mission of the Lord. It, it is of crucial importance to not just say peace to this house, but to also bring peace into the home by being a, pol- a polite and gracious guest. And the text tells us you do that by remaining in the same house. You know, not jumping around to different houses, always looking for a better place to stay. It was and still is rude to refuse the gracious hospitality of your hosts. Another way to do that is by eating and drinking what they provide. He puts it another way, which is a little more clear, eat what is set before you. Wait a minute, Jesus. What if I don't like the food that they're, that they're set before me in the, in the house? doesn't matter. Eat what is set before you, Jesus says. Now, I've only had a couple of experiences of going to another country on a short-term mission trip, um, and I was spoiled in both places. So uh, Greta and I went to Austria to serve at an English camp there, and every meal that we, we, we were served was delicious, especially the Wiener schnitzel, wonderful, delicious food. Then I went to Haiti, and there I had food set before me that I had never seen before, never experienced eating before, had to ask others to explain just what it was I was eating, which I've also learned from other missionaries, not a real wise thing to do to ask what it is, <laughs> just, just eat it, all right? But again, everything that I, that I was given there was delicious. But I, I have friends who have served both short and and uh, long-term in places like India and China and Pakistan and Oman, and they have had many strange dishes put before them, some things that they most definitely would never have tried on their own, but those who provided for them and were very excited and gracious to do so, so they would eat whatever was set before them with a smile on on their face and a grateful heart. And that graciousness commends the gospel to others. But the self-centered, picky, and prideful American who refuses to, be, to receive gracious hospitality all but spoils any appetite that there might be for the gospel. So notice, too, that the context for sharing the gospel is within someone's home. Someone's home that you have been invited into. It takes place within the context of hospitality around a table. It is a very personal ministry that Jesus is describing here. The messengers aren't going to villages to rent out large venues to hold huge meetings where one gifted speaker will stand up and preach the gospel and then be whisked off stage and rush back to his hotel room so he won't have to you know, actually talk to anyone there. But rather, this ministry is taking place in a very personal manner over food served on tables with people talking about eternal things face to face. Friends, that is still the primary way it should be done. Even in our socially distanced time, there's just something about sharing a meal together in the comfort of a home with your guard down where meaningful and patient conversations can take place. Verses 10 through 16 now, 
last section of our passage here, whatever we receive, whether we receive or reject the Lord's messengers is a very serious matter. Look at this in verses 10 through 16. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will, will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus again reminds us here that not everyone will accept his message or his people. The harvest is plentiful, but there are people and even whole cities who will refuse to be gathered up in the harvest and become a part of the people of God. And Jesus is making it clear that because they refuse to be gathered, they will be cut off from the people of God. They will be on the wrong side of God's coming judgment. In the age to come, they will not be a part of the eternal kingdom of God, which God's word describes in Revelation 21 as the dwelling place of God with man. The place where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. Instead, God's word in that same chapter describes for us the destiny of all those who reject his message, reject his messengers, and ultimately reject him. It says their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Sodom, as Luke mentions here, was the city in Genesis 18 and 19 which was condemned by God and was destroyed by sulfur raining down from heaven. One scholar describes Sodom like this, saying, the story of Sodom, Sodom's depravity in Genesis 19, branded the city as the model of infamy in Israel, the most sinful place of the most godless people. And here in verse 12, Jesus declares desolate, cursed Sodom better than a city that spurns the message of the kingdom of God and the messengers of Jesus Christ. So what does that tell us about certain cities in our nation today? New York City? Hollywood? Chicago? Seattle? These are strong words by the Lord Jesus here. This is a serious matter. Every one of you in this room have heard this warning. Jesus is God's king. He has already come into the world and did everything necessary for sinners and rebels like us to be saved from God's wrath against sin and to be reconciled to God, to have peace with him. Jesus accomplished it all in his perfect, sinless life, in his willing death on the cross as our sacrifice for sin, and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. So have you received him as your Savior? Do you know him as your Lord? 
Have you submitted to his rule and reign over you? That's what the kingdom of God means. God reigns through Jesus. And all who humble themselves and receive him as their king become the people of God who will enjoy eternal life with him after he has judged this world and done away with sin and death and sickness once and for all. And so these cities mentioned here, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, all had the privilege. They were privileged places. Personally witnessing the Lord Jesus perform mighty works over demons, destruction, and death. They heard his teaching, but it seems many rejected it. I mean, just think about it. They saw him. He was in their very town. They were witnesses of his great works, his miracles, and yet they didn't believe. They preferred to stay in their sin and their own self-righteousness. What does that tell us about people who say, well, if Jesus would just come down right now and do a miracle for me, I'd believe in him. So friends, you are aware that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His mightiest work. You are familiar with his transforming, saving work in the lives of many within this congregation. So what has been your response to him? Our passage closes here in verse 16 with this incredible statement by Jesus that had to bring both great encouragement and also trepidation upon the 72 messengers. Look at verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus is basically telling them, you will speak for me. You represent me to all those who will hear you. What they do with you, they ultimately do with me. What they do with me, they do with God the Father. So Jesus isn't just referring here to the apostles. It was for the 72 he sent out to proclaim this simple message, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Repent and follow the king God has sent. Today is our Sunday school kickoff. This Wednesday night, our Good News Club and youth group will start up again. So those of you who will be helping to share God's word with our children and students, you will be representing King Jesus to them. When you faithfully share his words, it will be as if Jesus himself is talking to them, inviting them to believe and follow him. Whenever you talk about Christ with a friend or family member and they reject it or they get upset with you, well, ultimately, they're not rejecting you, but the Lord Jesus and God himself. So hear these words from the great preacher again, J.C. Ryle. Just to get a hint of the seriousness of Jesus' words here, he says this, the minister who declares all the counsel of God and keeps back nothing that is profitable is one whose words cannot be disregarded without great sin. He is on the king's business. He is a herald. He is an ambassador. He is the bearer of a flag of truce. He brings the glad tidings of terms of peace to such a man the words of our Lord will prove strictly applicable. The rich may trample on him. The wicked may hate him. The pleasure lover may be annoyed by him. 
but he may take comfort daily in his master's words, the one who rejects you rejects me. The last day will prove that these words were not spoken in vain. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we now meditate and think about these words that we've heard and that I've expounded, I pray, Lord, for each one here that we would be humbled before you. You are the sovereign king. Oh, Lord, I pray you would help us to humble ourselves before you, to receive your words, to believe that there is life, eternal life in these words. And Lord, help us to allow Jesus, through these words, to change us, to make us more and more like him. Oh, we pray that everyone here that we would see them on that day. We would see them among that number of those who are gathered in in the harvest. Oh, we would rejoice. Help us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.